Aloha Kako. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Well, Honolulu's Arts District, if you look online, it's described as a modern, exciting mecca of galleries, shops, theaters, nightclubs, and restaurants. Locals, however, know it as Chinatown. And recently, there's been a spotlight on frustration there with vandalism, theft, and uncontrolled behavior. Dr. Christina Wang has seen it all. She's a wound care director at Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center. She basically tries to keep people out of emergency rooms by treating them on the street because a visit to a hospital emergency room can cost average $1,500 compared to about $20 on a street visit. And believe me, she and her team are appreciated. Wang pulled a cart with bandages, ointments, and sanitation supplies as she and her team started on their three-mile route. We picked our way around sleeping bags and people resting on that shady stone wall along Nu'uanu Stream there on River Street. There's some things that are really familiar to us, but um, there's so many variability out on the street from day to day, and that really affects the overall community's mood. The weather matters, the police presence matters, what's happened down at the park, you know, affects just what's happening down the block, as you saw with the gentleman that had been assaulted. And, you know, it's always sad for me to hear that that's a normal part of their life and they just think that that's okay and that's normal. And, you know, that's always really concerning to someone like us that we don't experience that violence like they do on a routine basis. And that's a lot of trauma. What do people run into? Tell me what they don't and can't tell me right now. Oh, gosh. Um, the ability to survive out here is just a constant stressor. So if you can imagine just not knowing where your next meal, or your water, or your shower is going to come from. Even though we have a hygiene center, that's world away for these folks down here that wouldn't be able to walk down to Aala Park where we just were. Why? You're running into things that have like severe depression where you just feel like you can't move from your spot. Um, you're worried about your belongings. You wouldn't have anybody that you could trust to watch them while you walk off somewhere. Some people are really stuck in their spot because they're dependent on the resources in their area. And that may include things like drugs or alcohol. And uh, that people are very dependent on certain drugs and certain alcohol to prevent from going into withdrawal. You would stay in that area so you don't get really sick. How did they pay for drugs and, and alcohol? So there's a lot of barter services out here. So yeah. maybe you have something that somebody else wants. Um, and, and that's one way. Um, we still experience a lot of people who sex work. Um, and we still work with a lot of people who may utilize, you know, other services they're getting, like EBT cards, to obtain um, what they're deeming as their medications. They're self-medicating. Um, you have a lot of folks out here that might hear voices or see what we call auditory or visual hallucinations, and that's very scary to them. So to kind of quiet that activity in the brain, they seek out alcohol and substances um, to really deal with that. How often do you see someone who's in a sort of a psychotic state or cannot communicate? We Yes. Um, so actually there was a gentleman we just ran into who is normally uh, that type of presentation. He's been in the hospital for the past two days, which is actually amazing. He's not a high ER or hospital utilizer. He would not normally go on his own volition. He was found down on the sidewalk two days ago, and when police officers asked him where he was, he said he had just arrived to Honolulu. He's actually been living in Hawaii for over 20 years from Ethiopia. And so he's very, very confused, and he was very dehydrated and had a series of electro, basically electrolyte imbalances that was causing encephalopathy or confusion in his brain. So he actually is looking the best we've seen him in probably months, and he's just wearing that paper suit, got a wheelchair, and uh, he's just basically asking you. for coffee right now. Good to see you. For a while, we were combating the bathroom closures, so there was nowhere for people to use the bathroom. And now that we have COVID in mind, restaurants that would normally let people come in to go to the bathroom, they closed, or they're trying to limit the number of people coming in. 
or you know they've even hung signs saying you know you have to be a patron or a customer to use the bathroom and over the last couple of years we've seen the restaurants in this area putting lock codes on the bathroom and that's made it extra challenging for our folks to use the restroom and so then we get a lot of people using out here and one of the concerns is hepatitis A outbreak. That is spread through fecal oral transmission. So when people use the bathroom out on the streets and then they have nowhere to wash it away, people touch it and then they end up inevitably touching their face and they get a hepatitis infection. While it's an acute situation and people will get better most of the time, makes them very ill and they have to go to the hospital to get treatment. There's still nowhere to use the restroom. There's I mean, nowhere no for way. you and I to use There's the restroom no right now. There's nowhere to use the restroom here. That's right. If you told me right now we need to stop during outreach and go to the bathroom, I would say we have to go beg uh, basically a restaurant and or pull out cash to get a chance to use the bathroom. So that's why it's all over our sidewalks and um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I think the Punavai rest stop has been a huge game changer for us for people who can make it down there. But like I talked about earlier, for some people that's just not a reality. It's It could be a couple blocks away and feel like a world away for those people to be able to go to the bathroom. What about Safe Haven? What about their restrooms? So they do have um, shower services yes. available yes. there, which has been and great. Restrooms. And restrooms. Um, I know that during the time of COVID, we may have seen an increase in excrement on the street because they also had to close down the number of people coming in and out of their shower services and their toilets uh, because they also had to be cleaning more intensively between uses. Is that the only restroom really that yes, is available? <laughs> yes, ma'am. So right now I'm the appointed Department of Health Medical Director for the Temporary Quarantine and Isolation Center. So those are for people who are, who are homeless, unsheltered, experiencing COVID. We have 24-7 services down there, nurses, physicians. How many people are, are patients there? So we've served um, 69 as of today. Um, the average length of stay is about four days, mostly because we are really successful in that right now I'm very proud to say 80% of the time um, of the patients that have come to our center, we've actually had them discharged not back to the streets, but to foster home, to shelter space, to um, temporary um, housing. I mean, four days just to be able to help somebody get a shower and meals and say, hey, we can help you tackle some of these medical concerns and look for a place that you can go to and not deal with the stressors and the trauma of the streets every day. It's a huge relief for people. Are there some people who don't want that? Yes, yes, let's be very clear. We have had a few people that have come into our center. They have a difficult time engaging or staying there and they do wish to return to the street. And we don't hold anybody against their will unless they're a danger to themselves or others. That's when we reach out to our psychiatry friends to really help us. But otherwise, most people just really need a hand up and they really can think clearer about what their long-term goals and plans are once they've had a shower and a meal. <laughs> Basics. Oh, you have to, a bone-thin man tipped over at the sidewalk and spilled out of his wheelchair, landing on his head. Christina knows him, and she rushed over there. Christina Wang is a nurse practitioner and wound care director at Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center. Just up Hotel Street a little bit past Nu'uanu is the Manifest, a whiskey bar made of wood and brick and always on the walls there's art often by a rising local tattooist or street artist co-owner nicole reed had her two-month-old oliver kamamalu on her hip when we talked on zoom about life since covid she's accessed the aid she can find out there for her bar uh, she's reopened as allowed but customers have been few and far between so it's a little um nerve-wracking to basically accrue debt without any income but we also know that the number one goal for us is to stay open. So we started doing deliveries, batch cocktails to go. We started doing that as well, but you know, none of it is gonna really do anything significant. It's like chewing gum with a toothache. It's not gonna go away, and we are just trying to figure out what it looks like to operate now, post-COVID, and it's a delicate balance because you know, we want to make money, but we need to keep people safe, which is two of our top priorities. But as a business owner, too, everyone has such a varied opinion on what safe is. We're kind of caught in the middle where people who are hyper sensitive to it want certain standards and people who don't care about it are kind of laughing if we try to uphold those standards. So it's a weird space to be in as a service provider right now. Especially that, you know, we sell socialization. 
<laughs> That's why people come to manifest is to socialize and share and dialogue. But if half of your seats are gone because of social distancing, it's just a new ballgame of how we make numbers work and how we continue to pay our bills and keep people employed, which is the main thing. Right now, we procured a PPP loan and an EIDL advance, but there was a point in time where it was like, I'm just going to give this money back because if I have to pay, you know, a thousand or two thousand a month to pay this back, I can't even afford that. So I'm glad they changed it. How much did you get? We got 37,200 in a PPP and then 10,000 in an EIDL. So 47,2 altogether, which like on a good month where we were before, that was just a little over half of my operating expense for one month. So yeah, <laughs> our operating expenses for this spot on a month, you know, product, personnel, insurance, rent, all of it was about 85,000. So if we're not making anywhere in that neighborhood, then it's really difficult to make it work. This is just pointing out to me how brave you and Brandon are. <laughs> As a creative entrepreneur, you want to believe that what you're doing makes sense and that what you're offering does work. Your idea is good. And in situations like this, where there are mitigating circumstances that go beyond your control, it really does, I think, come down to that belief in your idea and whether or not you have the resources to withstand this. My husband and I, we have a saying between the two of us and it's legs feed the wolf. If you watch a wolf hunt, any prey, they go after the slow ones. But if you have legs and you have stamina, you can watch a deer outrun a wolf. They do it all the time. But you have to have the legs to run faster for a long time. So it's something where we're personally invested, our family's invested. This is a small business, you know, with a, a working couple that's local. So we're just trying to wait it out. You know, and Manifest does stand apart in the, you know, the pantheon of great bars in Honolulu. What was your idea? My husband had worked at Bar 35 across the street for about five years. And his father had passed away when he was a young man and left him a small amount of money. And he was across the street looking out the window at this spot, which was blank. And it just so happened that I was working at a retail shop and my good friend there was also a painter. And he lamented that for local young artists that need a, a really heavily trafficked ground floor space, galleries tend to be really detrimental to your development. So my husband, being an entrepreneur, was like, well, I'll just open a bar that shows art. So that was our entire premise, was that we wanted to have a bar that had tall walls, that we could show our friends art and have space to have art shows for people that we hadn't seen art shows occurring for locally. And we had seen it working on the mainland in different venues, and it just made sense to us to take this money and give it a gamble. So we got an SBA loan, and yeah, everyone thought we were crazy because we were going to be open during the day. We're going to have coffee. We're not just going to be a late night bar. And that's kind of the genesis of it. We wanted to have a space for art with our friends. I'm so spoiled, Noi. My house is just full of beautiful art that otherwise I would have never, never, you know, interacted with. And we've shown over 120 artists over 10 years. It really came down to us wanting to create that space that we didn't see for ourselves here, being local kids. We wanted it here so that we could stay, <laughs> not have to go somewhere else. Did you both grow up here? Yes, Brandon's from Kaimuki, he's a Kalani grad. I lived all over the island with my parents, but I graduated from Priory and then from UH. So I met Brandon in college and it's funny because we were gonna either take that money and go somewhere else and he was gonna bartend and I was gonna go to grad school but we decided, okay, we'll put all that off and just try running a bar. And 10 years later and two babies deep. So we have two broken windows right now that we have to get fixed. And that's gonna probably be like, you know, $1,000 between the two of them. And uh, yeah, there's just homeless people in doorways again, defecating, trash everywhere. And there's only so much the police can do, you know? They're not mental health advocates by any stretch, so. I just got finished talking to Chulon and to Lee Stack about the increasing problems with that. What do you yeah. conclude is the answer there? I think the number one issue we have in Hawaii with houselessness is our housing. It's not affordable. And we can continue having these programs to 
take people's rights away to get them into facilities and force them treatment and i'm sure it will work for a certain amount of people but i do not think it is a critical mass type solution we're going to continue to have people having their problems on the street as long as the issue that keeps them on the street is financial difference if you're mentally ill but you can afford a house then you can have your mental issues in your house and no one cares but if you have your mental issues on the street everybody's upset which i agree with and i understand but we got to have affordable housing for people to go to and not just shelters where there's a ton of rules and stipulations where they can't take their animals or their family or their partner we need to radically relook at how we value housing in Hawaii. Otherwise, Chinatown will continue to be the source where they go to because we have the most outreach. I understand that it's a burden. Trust me, I do. But I don't know. I think I take it personally, too, because my, my husband's grandmother was mentally ill and she lived on the streets in Chinatown for a number of years. And we would find her under our building, you know, and it wasn't for lack of trying to get her in a house. She's mentally ill. So to do that, we had to sign her into state protection and then they were able to put her into a nice facility. I see where we could try to utilize that more often, but that's not the solution. That's one measure to help mitigate. It's just like putting band-aids on a gaping wound because Chinatown has continually bore the burden for the rest of the island at least to be that place where they can get services like food, and a shower and some help. I don't know, there's just gotta be space for people. We cannot keep pretending to push them off or put them places. They need to have space and they need to be humanized. Well, how, how could you see it, things coming together for the whole neighborhood? The future, I think, will be based on who's around. I hope we're a part of it. I hope Sandy's a part of it. I hope Murphy's a part of it. I hope all of the people that have the ability to figure out how to stay can do that. But if not, you know, knowing the one thing that's true about this area is Chinatown has been in business since before this place was even known by Holly people. <laughs> so it'll continue to have business. It'll continue to find people that want to try an idea that will determine what the next phase of this community looks like. I hope the pilot project with the seating outside, I hope it leads to the buses being reallocated to Veritania and King, and that we get a pedestrian bicycle way down hotel, which is what we've all been wanting for a long time. I hope that hotel Will Fats opens up because it would be great to have a boutique hotel to even have just a hundred extra bodies down in this neighborhood Monday through Sunday. Um, and I think at that point, you're going to see the businesses with the resurgence begin to try to do daring things where people can come down and socialize again in their city center, which is the whole reason why we opened this spot. I love that perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me too that says, you know, there is a specific base that a certain amount of dereliction gives. Like, if we continually clean it up and there isn't a mixture of peoples in the area, you know, I don't think the Chinese societies will last if, if prices go up and rents and values skyrocket. I don't think people are going to be able to continue their way of life in a lot of ways. So there's always been part of me knowing where I'm kind of grateful for just a little bit of dirt. Yeah, I, I'm I know. grateful for the reality that this place brings. Know exactly what you mean, Nicole. Nicole Reed, co-owner, The Manifest Art and Whiskey Bar, Chinatown, Honolulu. group you're hearing is Spooky Couch, denizens of Chinatown at Downbeat, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, there have been changes in Chinatown recently. Pe police are increasing patrols on Keikalike Mall. 
There's brighter lighting planned for that area, and there's greenery in the derelict planters. Harrison Rue is Honolulu's Community Building and Transit-Oriented Development Administrator. He's been around for more than a decade of Chinatown visioning. You're aware in Chinatown there's all kinds of issues that keep recurring, and the COVID-related issues just by having less people in the offices, less people working there, less people going out for lunch because they're working from home and not in the office, that has exacerbated lack of customers. And so a lot of cities are trying to come back from the, you know, work from home and work at home and general shutdown and lockdown. They want to make it easier for people to go outside and walk and exercise and do that sort of stuff. So the whole open streets idea is a part of that nationally. What was it like talking to the restaurants? What have they said about their recent experience? A range of different things. Almost all of them are somewhere between excited, grateful, hopeful, uh, a little worried. One of the 14 I talked to had closed and not coming back in that location. That was unfortunate to hear. Six of them have already registered for the outdoor dining. A few weeks ago, the city announced that you're now allowed to set out tables and chairs on city sidewalks. It hasn't been permitted, but Kathy Sohugawa at uh, DPP and John Uchi at DTS collaborated to make it. It's not even a permit required. You just literally have to go to an online form at the city and just register so that we know where it's happening. We know that you've read the rules. If you want to just try it Saturday since we're closing the street down, if you try it and like it Saturday, then you can go online and register. Again, we've made it really easy. A permit is not required. That is so cool, Harrison. I mean, how does it feel to be enabling so much? Trying to earn our salaries here. We're deeply appreciative of, you know, of being able to continue working. And, and you know, we're hopeful that if it, if it works and people like it, it's something that can continue right now that is only during any COVID-related emergency, which seems to be going on for a while. But uh, we're hopeful that it will work and people like it and, you know, certain streets can continue to do it. That's Harrison Rue, Honolulu's Community Building and Transit-Oriented Development Administrator, and he's talking about the Open Streets Initiative. It's uh, still on for Saturday. Hotel Street is still on open for pedestrians between 5 and 9 p.m. There'll be sidewalk dining, and Louis Pohl Gallery will be open. Mar- Arts at Marks will be open. Hawaii Theater Art Gallery will be there, and a perfect time to check out the downtown art center as well. Uh, there has been an increase in policing down there. Um, security guards are in place, and they will be at least until December. So things are changing. As far as we know, Open Street, Hotel Street is still on for Saturday from 5 to 9. Shops will be open until 6. You can bike with the family and enjoy the new murals. Now, We'll take a look at how COVID-19 is affecting the world around us. Both the United States and South Africa see higher caseloads, and Australia is limiting returning citizens. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday, July the 10th. I'm Jeanette Jalil. The United States and South Africa record their highest ever one-day caseloads. Australia halves the number of citizens it's allowing to return home at any one time. And for those interested in a bit of homeworking with white sands and azure seas, a Caribbean island beckons. For the second time this week, the U.S. has had its biggest one-day increase in coronavirus cases. It registered more than 63,000 infections on Thursday. As deaths rise in several hotspots, hospital intensive care units are filling up. Infections are increasing in more than 30 states. Per capita, Arizona has been hardest hit. Dr. Metaza Akta is in Phoenix. You have to pick and choose who gets that life-saving intervention. I've never had to be in that situation. Maybe a miracle will happen. It kind of did in New York where they just managed to escape. But we're not in New York. We don't have the same resources. So I'm concerned about what's going to happen in a week and a couple weeks from now. Florida's also seeing cases surge. Andrew Pastuski is an ICU medical director at a Miami hospital. In all honesty, we don't feel like we're moving anywhere positive. We knew it would be a chronic issue, but we had our 24-bed COVID floor. Then this came, and then we had to open up a second floor. 
and the third floor. Now we're into a fourth and fifth floor, and we don't see it getting any better. South Africa has also recorded its highest ever single-day increase, with more than 13,000 infections over the past 24 hours. It's the worst affected country in Africa, Pumza Filani reports. Nearly half of the new COVID-19 cases in South Africa were recorded in the economic hub Gauteng. So far, 3,720 people have died, and that number is expected to rise. While the disease is beginning to spread quickly here, the recovery rate is still around 47%. The Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, has announced that the number of citizens allowed back into the country at any one time will be reduced. It follows a surge in infections in the state of Victoria. Phil Mercer reports. International flights into Australia will be cut by half and the number of travellers limited each week to 4,000. Mandatory hotel quarantine will no longer be paid for by the government, so it will be harder and more expensive for Australians to fly home. In the UK, quarantine rules have ended for travellers arriving from around 60 countries classified as lower risk. Scotland, which has lower rates of the virus than England, has kept the restrictions for those coming from Spain and Serbia. Scotland is also the first nation in the UK to make it compulsory to wear masks in shops. The UK has the highest number of recorded deaths in Europe from COVID-19. In Bolivia, the interim president, Janine Agnes, has been diagnosed with COVID-19. She's the second Latin American leader after Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro to contract the illness. And in Venezuela, the head of President Maduro's Socialist Party says he's tested positive. Hong Kong says it will close its schools because of a spike in locally transmitted coronavirus cases over the last two days. The city reported 42 new cases on Thursday. Kevin Young is a Hong Kong Secretary for Education. Up to now, there has not been any confirmed cases of infection at schools. However, the Education Bureau has decided that all secondary schools, primary schools and kindergarten could advance the beginning of their summer holidays to next Monday. Ballots in Singapore's general election are being counted after polls were extended for two hours. The vote is widely being seen as a referendum on the government's handling of the outbreak. The city-state has recorded only 26 deaths but is facing its deepest economic recession. The People's Action Party, which has been governing for 55 years, is expected to win. A number of cosmetic surgery clinics around the world are reporting an increase in people getting treated during the coronavirus pandemic because, it seems, clients like the fact that they can recover behind masks or while they're in quarantine. Clinics in the US, Japan, South Korea and Australia have all seen a rise. And if you're working from home and fancy a change of scene, what about relocating to the Caribbean? The authorities in Barbados are considering offering a 12-month visa to encourage visitors to work remotely from the island. The Prime Minister of Barbados is Mia Amor Motley. Barbados felt that it was the perfect place to be able to offer persons the chance to work, to be able to have a vacation at the same time if they want and they wanted to bring their family and if their children were of school age, we could accommodate them if necessary. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Thomas Moore, the author of A Religion of One's Own. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about creating a personal spirituality in a secular world. Sunday morning at 11.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening on July 16th with an extension of 30 Americans, works by 30 contemporary artists connected through their African-American cultural history. HonoluluMuseum.org. Thanks so much for your company. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Now, Chinatown's Mark's Garage is the usual home of the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival, but this year, co-founder and artistic director Tony Bisculli is taking the bard online. He's already experimented with a national group to get Shakespeare onto a digital stage. I think it's phenomenal. The plays speak for themselves. They work very well. The language has always been the key thing about Shakespeare, and the language translates very well to Zoom. We'll be um, able to hear every word. Yes. Okay, so tell me how the casting and, and the rehearsals have shaped up for this upcoming festival. Well, we did our auditions at the usual time. We just moved them online. And at the time, we were committed to doing the three shows, and we didn't know whether we'd be doing them online or offline or outdoors or what socially distanced. Then in the audition process, all three directors ended up casting actors from the mainland. So I've got actors from Mary Wives of Windsor who are in California and Connecticut and Florida. And that's something we were never able to do before, obviously. You know, people had to physically be here to be in the festival. What am I going to be seeing though? So there's been a lot of folks experimenting with Zoom theater and how to make that work. People enter and exit by turning their camera on and off. So if there's one person on screen, you'll see that person on screen. And if there's two people in the scene, they will share the screen and so on. I'm trying to do something a little bit fancier, but I can't promise that I'll be able to deliver because it's been a challenge. I'm taking Zoom and routing it through some free software, Open Broadcast Studio, that will allow me more control over the layout of what we actually see so I can make people different sizes and rearrange them how I like on screen. It remains That's a little to be too seen. much power for a director, really. Oh, no, no. I feel like my hands are tied behind my back directing these things. I can't do any of my usual tricks. I can't position people three-dimensionally. I can't connect to the audience. I can't have actors touching each other to indicate relationships. You know, I have to do it all with just looks. <laughs> Right, they have to figure out which way to look. We've spent hours figuring out which way to look. It's, uh, it's a real challenge to work around the limitations, but that's fun. It's always good to stretch yourself as an artist. Tony Vasculi, Artistic Director of the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival, featuring As You Like It, Love's Labor's Lost, and The Merry Wives of Windsor online this season. One ticket for the whole entire family. BYOB, he says. The season begins July 17th. Find a link to their site on the conversation webpage at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company, a mission partner of Navian Hawaii, whose services include providing counseling and support to families fighting serious illnesses. More at navianhawaii.org. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, as the lights of thousands of communication satellites streak across the sky, some people view them as an intrusive show of power, raising the question, who owns the night sky? Is it a shared resource that we hold in community trust? Is it a basic human right? On the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. The Honolulu Museum of Art is set to reopen Thursday, July 16th with attractive new hours and 
30 Americans, a vivid exhibit of contemporary African-American artists. Deputy Director Allison Wong says that work has immediate cultural resonance. It's particularly a great time to have this exhibition. This exhibition really highlights the work of 30 artists, all African-American, whose narratives and work really talk about what's happening today. It's race, it's gender equality, topics that are poignant, and we're really excited for the public to come back and see the work in person and see some of the personal narratives that are also exhibited alongside these fabulous pieces. People are so well acquainted with the music culture of African Americans, but this show, this visual culture, really is like a splash of cold water in the face. How would you describe it, Allison? Well, this exhibition, it's 40 years worth of the Black culture and the art being showcased, from pioneer artists like Robert Colescott to very young, um, new contemporary artists. It's really important. It highlights, you know, conceptual, it highlights painting, it highlights installation-based work. It's a really critical moment in time that really makes our eyes open and really examine what's happening right now in the world. I think people are really going to be stunned to see that circle of Ku Klux Klan hats. It is visual melody, the, the, the silhouettes along the wall there that you've got, covering an entire wall. The bright colors, the full colors that are not tropical colors. It's really something different for us. Terrific to have in Honolulu. And I love going to a museum at night, and that's going to be our opportunity, right, Allison? Yes. So when we reopen on July 16th, we are going to have new operating hours Thursday through Sunday with Friday and Saturday opening until 9 p.m. So our hours will be from 10 to 9 on Friday and Saturday. And this just gives us a really a wonderful opportunity to attract new audiences to the museum who might have to work during the day and, you know, watch kids at night or have to do homework. But just to come out and like you would go to a movie or go out to dinner, come see HOMA. You know, come see us in the evening and grab a bite from our coffee bar, have a glass of wine and a little tapas plate, sit in the courtyards and meander the galleries and really take it as a respite, whether you're in 30 Americans or enjoying the Arts of Hawaii galleries or taking in the Japanese woodblock prints. It'll be a special time to make sure that we can come with friends and be able to communicate and dialogue and just be out. I think everybody's so thirsty to get back and to have this arts and culture enrichment Thank you so much for having this show here. It's the very perfect thing to have right now. It is. Mm -hmm. well, we look forward to having you back. I think the last time I saw you was actually at the opening of 30 Americans. So. Yeah. <laughs> the last time we partied. Exactly. <laughs> Happy to be back. That was Allison Wong, Deputy Director, Honolulu Museum of Art. And remember, Thursday, July 16th, HOMA opens into the night. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation. So glad you're with us. It's time now to talk with Captain Jerry Gilgren, a Hilo charter operator and independent commercial fisherman. Now, this sector of small boat owners takes people out fishing for sport, and they also provide the nearshore fish that we so enjoy. I mean, it's aku season. <laughs> the last surveys are from 2011, but back then, it was a $49 million industry supporting nearly 900 jobs. Gilgren says these jobs are often in rural areas all across the state. You know, for the little guys that are trying to provide for their families, um, it's really, really tough to you know, this is islands wide, you know, from Kauai all the way down to Big Island. How many of you are there, the smaller commercial and charter fishing? I would say, I know the Kona side right now has about 85 to 90 
charter boats. On Cornerside, how many of you are operating out of Hilo? Out of Hilo and Kalapana and Puna area, probably somewhere around 40 to 50. Throughout the islands, uh, I can only guess that would probably be somewhere around maybe 600 or so. And how much would you say your business has dropped? Oh my gosh, 80 to 90%. We still have the boat payments. We still have you know, equipment to maintain. We still have the dock fees. There's just nothing to replenish it unless we get side jobs. Um, you know, a lot of us are contractors, painters and electricians and so on. And we pick up side jobs to help us fund what we can. Then again, there's, there's a lot of the real small fishermen that simply aren't even going out because it's, it costs too much in fuel and there's no market to sell the fish. Right now, are fishermen going out just for themselves and their families? Yes, they are. And, you know, that's, that's part of Malama, taking care of their families and their communities. We've gone out many times and caught fish and just given it away because there's a lot of hungry people out there. And so for my guys, I've just basically helped them out of pocket from savings. So if you can imagine, you know, we have practically mm-hmm. zero business at all. It's been quite a challenge. I wish there was something we could do. Um, What's on the horizon then? Well, so the only options we have is the federal government did give some monies for commercial fishermen. And right now it's kind of at a stalemate. Uh, I believe it was 4.1 million that they gave the state of Hawaii for the independent fishermen. That gets funneled through the Western Pacific fisheries. They have to work with NOAA Right now, it's in NOAA's hands. They're having to get approved from tribes, uh, you know, and this is nationwide. So they're taking it a state at a time before they can give it to Western Pacific fisheries to distribute to the independent fishermen. And then, of course, you have to apply for it through their website. So I've been trying to keep track of all of that. And right now, like I said, it's, it's just been in a holding pattern. So I did apply for an SBA loan. I did get approved, but I'm waiting to, to get funded by that at this time. You know, the local market what just isn't big enough. Is that it? It isn't. There's just no place to take the fish. A lot of fish markets in Honolulu buy from a lot of different boats that come in, and, and some of them are foreign boats. So they're buying from those buyers, and of course they buy from some of the locals also. But... What I'm saying is that if they bought primarily from the locals, it would at least inject some funds for the local guys. Captain Jerry Gilgren, a Hilo charter operator and commercial fisherman, he's saying consumers have to demand the local product. It's the kako thing. I mean, the thing we can do together. And by the way, that the, uh, it will cost more. That $10 a pound poke is just not helping local fishermen. So glad Jerry contacted us after HPR's story on the longline fishing industry here. I mean, you can do the same thing when a story hits home with you. Um, call us. Help us to take it deeper. Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week, it's Kapena, who have been playing their electrifying island contemporary music for 35 years. Original band member Kelly Boy DeLima is now joined by his three children for a fresh sound that will delight diehard fans and new listeners alike. That's Saturday night at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. Ooh, that sounds great. Well, Aaron Mahi is a man of music, a cultural advisor. He conducted the Royal Hawaiian Band for more than 20 years. Aaron's also a bass player, singer, conductor of the Kamehameha Alumni Glee Club and the New Sovereign Strings, too. He was one time an HPR board member as well. 
Just this past February, Aaron Mahi was honored with the Hawaii Arts Alliance's Alfred Price Award for Lifetime Contributions. And just the other day, we were reminiscing about the terrific party at the Halekulani and how Waikiki is so glorious in the summertime, you know, like now with the south waves, come, south shore waves coming up and um, the music. I mean, there's always been the music down there. Oh, golly, when you come to Waikiki, I mean, it all depends on the era. I remember right around the 69, 70, my good friends and uh, I would always go down to Waikiki and just walk the streets and have our instruments and perform. Kalena Silva, who's now dean over at the Kahakaula Keelikolani. Incredible uh, chanter. And then Dennis Kamakahi, the three of us. We had a trio in high school. Back then, we used to just walk the streets at Kalakaua, especially during the Loho Week period, during Ho'olaulea, you know, just have our instruments and just sing. <laughs> <laughs> songs like what songs? Oh, back then, the group that was really popular and that we um, admired as a trio was the Kahawa Nule Trio. That was the kind of sound that we enjoyed, that three-part harmony that Kahawa Nule had arranged with his group. You know, we did a lot of those songs like um, Leahi. Leahi is the old name of what we now call Kaibadahila, or Diamond Head. That area at the crater there, that was a Mary Pula Arabin song. Leahi, talk to me about that song. That song, Leahi. Leahi. You know, Hawaii's space is so important. And so that's why when she says Leahi, otherwise known as Kaimanihila or Diamond Head, it is a part of the large bay of Mamala, the waves crest there. It's a real simplified song in terms of uh, repeating uhe uhene, like a tralala in it. But look what we can learn. I mean, that part of sort of Waikiki Bay along there is Mamala. Yeah, Mamala Bay runs from where Kaimanihila is or Diamond Head, comes out by Black Point, heading west from Diamond Head. All of Ala Moana that we know today, all of uh, Honolulu, and then coming out to uh, Pu'uloa, where Pearl Harbor is. That area is the Bay of Mamala. So, you know, in the typical Hawaiian style of first establishing your space, she does that in the first verse. And then she gets to the subject of the, the it was the first buoy. You know, if you know where the lighthouse is, you go straight out. There was a buoy that was uh, to warn the ships when they would come around in Little Mamala, coming from the Kaivi Channel. Uh, this is like if you're coming from Molokai Wakeside, to warn about the reefs there. That's why it says, Malamapono o ikapoi pele. The poi pele is the is the buoy that would bob up and down. And be careful because you can see now oily. Oily means comes into view. Eh? So the, the reef will come into view, but sometimes you're not sure because of the waves. So that's how they would have that buoy over there. Like and surfers then, know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, for sure. It, it just gives you a sense of that area. But understand too, <laughs> there's a counter to the song. Better tell us now. Inside stories. <laughs> and this is kind of a trait too when poets write. And if they're going to write about mountains or hills, or more than not, they're talking about a male figure. <laughs> So some of the stories passed down was actually she's writing about her husband, how she's in love with him, and and the various aspects of each of the verses describe their happiness with each other, her pride and his handsomeness, you know. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So there's always the always the other side of the story. Well, what do you know about her? She sounds like an interesting woman. Mary Pula, she was a wonderful composer, composed the opening song for the um, dedication of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, February 1st of 1926. Again, in each of the verses, 
And I, I don't think there's a kauna. In this case, it's really describing their first experience to see a luxury hotel. She describes every part of it. From the first verse, you know, you know, oh, to see this large hotel in all its beauty. Meaning, it's just so beautiful how it gleams. It's truly a beauty. <laughs> The walls were made of marble and green marble. <laughs> and I guess the green and the pink and everything else created this <laughs> rainbow, you know, in the, in the hallways as you walk within the hotel. That was the third verse of being on the beds. The first bed that had velvet sheets. You know, the two of us, we could sleep on these velvet sheets. It was so delightful, you know. She used the word maika'i. I think that's so fine. It was a refinement. Not experienced any place else. <laughs> and then the verse about the lipoa, walking on that soothing sands and smelling the scent of lipoa coming off the ocean. That's all so the luxury and all yeah. that nature as well. Absolutely. Mary does such a wonderful job in describing things. Only because I believe in her poetry, not only does she describe it, but she has a, a kind of a way of saying it in Hawaiian that makes you feel it. I mean, even though you're not there, you could feel it <laughs> somehow, and you could taste it, or you could sense it. You know, it, it's just like a wonderful poet of that Hawaiian craft of hakumele. Uda. Musician educator Aaron Mahi with the music of Mary Pula'a Robbins. Lipoa is a brown seaweed, by the way. And we heard the Kahawanu Lake Trio with Leahi and the Brothers Kazimero with the Royal Hawaiian Band. A hotel. Yes, Robert, we remember you and Roland in the monarch room, velvet curtains, champagne. <laughs> I guess that's it for this Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for being here. The conversations produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz themes written by John DeMello and our theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of us. Let's take care of each other. And meet again Monday for more of the conversations.